1: Josh Marshall podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a number of basically the reverberations of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision that uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. You know, at at TPM, we have been uh, dedicating a lot of time to uh, how uh, Congress might potentially overrule what the Supreme Court did in Dobbs basically come back and legislate a national abortion right and how that plays into the midterm election and so on and so forth. But as has been clear, well, it was clear long before Dobbs, but it has been clear ever since uh, Dobbs came down, abortion, the the jurisprudence over abortion, is tied to something called the right to privacy. And the way that uh, this decision was overturned made pretty clear that uh, this current Supreme Court does not think there is a right to privacy. Now, some of the justices uh, were very quick to say, hey, "Hey, this has nothing to do with anything else. This is just abortion. Don't get mad at us." Blah 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 blah. Whereas others, uh, like you know Justice Thomas in his concurrence, were like, "Fuck it, we're 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 doing it." You know, get ready. So uh, there is there has been a push in recent days uh, among Democrats on Capitol Hill to say, uh, you know, whatever we're going to do about abortion, potentially, you know, uh, national abortion right in uh, early 2023. Let's talk now about a national right to contraception, because the right to contraception is one of the er decisions with the right to privacy. It's not the first exactly. It's a little more complicated than that. But basically, it's the decision where that kind of uh, stream of jurisprudence really kind of comes into play. So uh, can you, I mean, it, I think to many of us, um, it feels almost absurd that we're even talking about this. You know, contraception is, 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 is no longer something that, that people have to go and kind of, you know, whisper to the pharmacist, right? <laughs> there's a whole big, there's a whole rack in the cvs all sorts of stuff you can buy it it's just you know it's everywhere uh and yet as we know there is a strong uh traditionalist element in the american uh political framework that just doesn't like what contraception makes possible which is basically sex more or less without risk for enjoyment or you know obviously various kinds of family planning, blah, 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 blah. And it also intersects with the abortion issue, issue, since uh, many diehard anti-abortion advocates believe that a number of things that we consider, that many of us consider contraception, are actually abortions. And it has to do with sort of the technical details of implantation and all this kind of stuff. So uh, contraception, marriage equality, and even the right to marry someone, even if they're of a different race than you are. You know, most of us consider this kind of stuff went out with like, you know, slavery and Jim Crow. And yet the uh, court decision on that, uh, oh God, I don't know the exact year. It's only in the early 60s, I believe, the loving decision. So uh, Democrats have been saying, Let, let's, let's try to pass laws about these things now. Let's, let's, let's reinfuse this, these things have not happened yet, but there's clearly a faction on the court that wants to uh, overturn those rulings too. So let's confirm these rights through legislation. And uh, we can all recognize that these things operate on two different levels. If you can succeed legislatively, great. Then you sort of uh, put a whole class of Americans, uh, you know, remove some anxiety from them, r- remove some risk. From them, because now you have a law, and that at least, at least, uh, like I said, reinforces the right. If Republicans block it, then you have another issue you take to take to the midterm election. Now, um, people often act as though, you know, if you say then it's an election issue, that that's kind of cynical and cheap. Ah, you just you just make it an election issue, but huh, this is what elections are for you know, you want to say, what is actually on the line? You say, I'm going to vote for Democrats, I'm going to vote for Republicans, I'm going to vote for, you know, I hate Biden, I love Biden. Making something an election issue is to say, this is what we're talking about, you know? So uh, this this current Congress is unwilling to legislate to make clear that you can, you can if you're white, you can marry a black person, you can marry an Asian person, blah, 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 blah. So that is, that is going on, and as I said, you know, it's either it's either a legislative success or or, or it's a uh it becomes an a, a question to litigate in the midterm election and for democrats both are positives so you know why not let's do it right now now something happened yesterday that uh and as i said there's been there's been a growing push for this in addition to the politicking over uh abortion and dobbs uh particularly in the house to Push these things through. Let's do it. You know, we have, the, we have the majority now. Let's do it. So yesterday, they voted on something called the Respect for Marriage Act. And probably as you'd expect, all Democrats voted for it. But what the surprise was that 47 Republicans voted for it too. And there's, you know, give or take a little over 200 Republicans. So that's, you know, that's between 20 and 25 percent. It's it's a significant chunk of the caucus. And uh, if you look if you look at who actually voted, it's an interesting cross section. A lot of it's clearly generational. You know, younger people just this is. This is a settled issue for them, kind of regardless of their politics. Uh, one thing that kind of jumped out at me, although I don't have statistics, is that, uh, you know, there are a number of Hispanic members of the GOP House caucus, not a huge amount, but an, a number. And a lot of them were yeses on this. Uh, not surprisingly, so were a lot of people who've already been kicked out of the party, You know, uh, both uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, I believe, voted for it. And so did uh, most of the reps who either directly or indirectly have already been forced to retire because of Trump, because they voted for the commission or, you know, whatever like that. In any case, it was a big surprise to pretty much everybody that 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 many Republicans voted for it. Uh, What came in the subsequent reporting, uh, the... A minority whip. They didn't make it a party vote, and what that means is they're basically saying to their members, "Hey, vote how you just what you think. This is not a party loyalty thing. We don't have a party position. Do it. Do what you feel." Now, when that happened, suddenly it started to look a little different in the Senate because most people have been assuming they're going to shut this down in the Senate. So this is going to be another argument for why you need to add to the Democratic Caucus. You know, same. Same line of thinking uh, about a Roe law, an abortion law in 2023. But when that happened, you know, if, if 47 House members are voting for it, suddenly it puts the, you know, to the, to the extent they exist, moderates in the Senate in a kind of a different position. You know, you can't just kind of easily say no. You know, one, one thing when uh, the Democrats voted for their uh, Roe bill uh, in late spring, Murkowski and Collins, who were supposedly pro-choice, they voted to sustain the filibuster, right? So it's kind of a, you're allowed to do that. Like you, you, you support abortion rights, but you're going to block it just because of party loyalty. So that suddenly changed. And I, I was, uh, I was talking to someone very high up uh, over in the Senate on the Democratic side uh, yesterday, and it was clear to me that they didn't, they didn't, they didn't see that coming. So they kind of didn't really see it as something that was going to be a big issue in the Senate, just like you know, like everything else that Republicans block. Um, and so, you know, and, and Kate and I were just talking before we started about, you know, it it could go through. We don't know. I mean, it's you, you probably wouldn't do do bad if you had to place a bet to bet against it. But it's not just one of these things. Like every single every single thing in the Senate, we know Republicans are going to block, unless unless you know. And uh, well, I was going to say four sixty votes, but the point is, you know, maybe they'll they will actually. Um, B 60 votes. So that's something we're talking about now. Now, one thing that I want to make clear, uh, and, and I was a little unclear about this last night, because when I first uh, reported this, it was based on my own reading of the actual bill. And I am not an expert. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert on legislative language. But people were presenting it as this legislates a national right to same-sex marriage, and the bill also covers uh, interracial marriage. Um, but on same-sex marriage, that, doesn't, that is not exactly what it does. It does something close to that, but not precisely. What it does is this. It overturns the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the Clinton-era act that Republicans kind of jammed him into, but kind of everybody supported, I mean, not everybody, but overwhelming bipartisan support back in the 90s. Gets rid of that which basically takes the government the federal government out of the uh same-sex discrimination business. And even though you have the court decision, it it was never repealed, right? It's still kind of sitting there. So in theory it would pop back into place if if uh, Obergefell was was overturned. So it says that uh the federal government will recognize same-sex marriages. Now, that obviously is hugely important for social security, for benefits, for you know, everything under the sun uh, with uh all the ways that we as humans interact with federal government really big deal it also says that if you were married to a same-sex partner in say mississippi after the uh supreme court decision that if it is overturned your marriage will not disappear your marriage even it is is ironclad. Nothing's gonna happen to it. So it puts everybody who is currently married and was married in a state that did not allow uh abortion uh getting my getting my rights confused here. Uh did not allow same-sex marriage. You're good. The additional thing it does, and this is the part that I'm I, I'm uh I think I'm pretty clear on, uh well let me let me back up. What it does not do, at least my understanding of, of the of the bill, is that if the Supreme Court gets rid of that decision alabama can come back and say all right no more same-sex marriages in alabama we are not issuing we're not doing that supreme court says doesn't say we have to that's done however alabama would have to recognize any other states same-sex marriage on equal terms so if you are a a couple in uh alabama you can't get married in alabama well You know, you trying to think of the geography, what close place you can go. Uh, But, you know, you fly to another state where they have it, get married, come back to Alabama and you're good to go. So it's pretty close, but it does not actually force every state to accept same-sex marriages. And I suspect that's because that precise point to dictate what the states do as opposed to states having to recognize other states' marriages gives the Supreme Court a potential opening. So uh, in any case, that is, so that's what we're talking about. Everything's, everything's kind of moving to that. So we're going we're gonna to dig into that and a couple other issues. you have got what may be the final uh, Jan 6 hearing uh, tomorrow and uh, some more uh, Joe Manchin nonsense, as always. Before we get to that, let me remind you, greatest cold brew iced coffee. Sponsored of Josh Marshall Podcast. Thank you, Grady's. Uh, it's hot. Yeah, it really is hot right now. You know, it's hard to, I, 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 I like to avoid thinking about global warming when I can, but like now you really can't. I mean, you know, we all know weather is not climate, but eesh, it's 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 like all over the northern hemisphere at the moment. It's hot, like too hot to put on real clothes and shoes to go out for iced coffee. But that doesn't mean you have to suffer without something delicious and cold to sip on. Get a Grady's cold brew bean bag kit delivered to your door and enjoy smooth silky iced coffee without ever leaving your house. Each kit makes thirty-six glasses of iced coffee, which means you'll be ready to weather even the worst heat waves. And with a price tag of just a buck a cup, you'll have money left over to splurge on a kiddie pool. Ready to feel the chill with every sip? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, Kate Riga, we're going to talk about this stuff. And we're also going to talk about our list. It's coming. Right. It's it's I I just I just uh, banged some heads on slack before we came on the uh, before we came on the air. And uh, I I got them. I I bloodied them up and I got them to agree. We can we can put it out today. So uh, let's talk first about these bills. What's what's going on there?
0: Yeah. So I think I'm really interested in what you talked about in the intro, which is how these fare in the Senate, because like you say, just a couple of days ago before the House vote, I mean, Durbin was saying, I don't know if we'll have time to put it on the floor. You know, our calendar is packed. And I think even though there's a knee jerk kind of anger reaction to that, if, you know, if something like this is kind of dead on arrival in the Senate, you can understand they're trying to get judges confirmed at like a a neck breaking pace right now, which is probably all things being equal, more important. Um,
1: And they also have just budgetary stuff that just has
0: to happen. Exactly. And of course, they have to go on recess in August. So that's where
1: it becomes kind of more BS. Like, exactly. you know, you know uh, uh, judges and also vacations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, can't skip those. Yeah, don't, 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 don't go cinema, over the top. You know?
1: Don't go over the top. Yeah.
0: But the thing, the question mark for me is people are now getting into this place where we're seeing some Republican senators being open to it, and that's setting up a flurry of interest, I think, heightened interest in a bill that otherwise people wouldn't be that interested in, except like you say, to use in campaign ads, maybe. And so kind of what we know for sure is Rob Portman has decided to co-sponsor it. That was the first big thing. Now, as we remember, Portman is retiring. So he is kind of the prime profile of someone who would be okay with (laughs) co-sponsoring this. It's
1: very popular among retirees.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And then we had Tom Tillis It was squishy, but he said basically along the lines of like, I'm considering it or I'm open to it or yeah, that sounds like something I could support. But with enough wiggle room that if McConnell ends up being like, you know, draws a line across his neck, you can back out. And then interestingly, as we were discussing right before we went on the air, Romney says it's not something I've given consideration to at this stage because he says, I don't see the law changing. And then you have Lindsey Graham as a flat no. And again, Romney's squish is similar to Tillis's squish, though, in the negative realm, you know, giving himself enough room to change his mind if he wants. But I think it's interesting that his kind of knee jerk response is to err on the side of no, because when we're talking about pulling together 10 Republican votes, as we've said before, as soon as you lose a a Romney or, you know, even a Graham at times, the bench just gets redder and redder and redder. You know, it's not like Tommy Tuberville is going to come out of left field and be like, you know what, I'm going to vote for this. Yeah.
1: yeah, The pool
0: is rather small.
1: As you know, as as I mentioned uh, before we we started recording, too, though, is that I tend to think of these things as that it's that it's wrong to think of them as individual senators. That really, this will happen or not happen because Mitch McConnell and other stakeholders will decide, let's not die on this hill. This is like, you know, the decision hasn't even been overruled. So it's not like we're really changing anything. It's kind of already settled. And do we really want to kind of, you know, hold this up when it's kind of just let it it pass through or give people a free vote As, as opposed, you know, it... And if they decide that Mitch McConnell can come up with 10 votes. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I just he'll just call up some new senator and says, guess what? You're voting yes. You know, I mean, he 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 really runs that operation. And uh, so it, it's you know, it's it's a it's a funny thing. I think that can even happen by. The caucus itself, as it were, deciding let's not have this fight and that even coming from people who are going to vote No. You know people who are really against it, who are very against same sex marriage you know so these things happen in 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 funny ways. One of the other things we were just talking about is with with Romney and you know as we as you say the the sort of the for lack of a better word non-trump owned caucus in in among Senate Republicans pretty small if you're not if you don't have Romney kind of like you you know you're not even, you're not even in the hunt. But an interesting thing was uh, that when I looked at the list, at least the entire Utah house delegation voted yes. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of early anti same sex marriage, political funding and stuff like that came out of Utah and came out of the Mormon church. Uh, And yet more recently they've kind of taken a Different position. Obviously, in in their in their own theology and so forth, they're, you know, totally hardcore on this issue. But they have been a little bit more like, you know, that's just what the state does. You know, if that's gonna help people, you know, kind of live more ordered lives and, you know, be able to visit people in the hospital, whatever. Now, I'm not saying they're they're like uh, uh, totally indifferent to it, but they've taken a kind of a an increasingly distinct position from white evangelicals. And again, Mormons are not evangelicals. It's a it's a, I mean, it's become a big thing over over recent decades that Mormons more and more want to say, "Hey, we're just we're just Christians." Theologically, it is a very distinct religion. Blah blah blah, distinct history, but all that kind of stuff. So it was a little surprising to me to see uh, Mitt. Uh, you know, not only, you know, be seem a little, seem a little negative, you know, he's not only a Mormon. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I was going to, you know, it seems strange that I would say, Hey, he's also from Utah, but I mean, it's because he's been from a very other, he's been from a lot of other States in the past. So I have to say that. Um, I guess presumably you get Collins and in, anyway, I know they were. I know that Senate Democrats were making calls and seeing if they could put this together last night. Well, I guess we'll see where it where it ends up.
0: And it's interesting to me that the two bills like this that are being that have been introduced is this marriage one and then the enshrining the right to contraception one. And it's hard to tell if this is anything strategic because, like we said, Senate Democrats didn't really think. Either of these, we're going to see the light of law anytime soon. So it was really started out as kind of a messaging project from the House, but um, the contraception one is like further back on the conveyor belt. It was just introduced yesterday. It hasn't, you know, obviously hasn't passed the House yet or anything like that. And that is interesting to me because I think of these two issues, obviously both in direct response to Clarence Thomas's dissent, where he encouraged you know revisiting them. The contraception one is the more kind of natural, I think, next step in terms of where anti-abortion type people want to go. I mean, the the anti-contraception thing has always been part of the anti-abortion movement from the beginning. And there have been various attempts to kind of go after different methods of contraception. We've already seen in the immediate aftermath, you know, IUD is coming under suspicion and plan B coming under suspicion. So it is interesting that we're kind of going with the more extreme one first, right? Like same-sex marriages, uh, while like you say, it's of the same privacy universe, it is kind of like distinct in that way. It's, right. it's not as natural a cousin. Um, and,
1: and it's it's all, I mean, it's distinct in a lot of ways. Another way that it's distinct is that, and again, I I, I don't know a lot of the case law and stuff, but traditionally things like Marriage, you know, there's there's not a federal marriage, right? I mean, it's that is something that is kind of left to the states to administer and stuff like that. Whereas um, contraception is, in a basic sense, a medical issue, and and so there are there's a lot of differences that can come up um, just in terms of different theories of the power of the federal government. Um, I'm also kind of curious how exactly that is defined in a law, the, you know, uh, contraception. I mean, the, the, I mean, because it's not, I mean, at some level, kind of like we all know what, we all know what a contraceptive is. But, you know, when you dig into it, it's, 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 Pretty complex. Exactly what you're, you know, specific what you're, what you're talking about. The other thing is that it, it's sort of paradoxical because on the one hand, uh, a right to gay mar- to a, a same-sex marriage in the United States, is very new. It's six or seven years old, and yet at a basic level, it's kind of it's in the rearview mirror, I think, for 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 the country. And but again, it's it's still pretty it's still pretty recent with. Contraception, again, I think for a lot of us, it is it. It's hard to even understand that we're even talking about it, right? at At, at, a, at a basic level, and yet, as you say, it's probably under more threat than same sex marriage. Mm-hmm. No one's really kind of. There's no big move like, oh, we got to kind of turn back the the same sex marriage thing. Kind of, it's right. you know just whatever. But as you say, with abortion, th- you know, they're in the ascendant and they want. They want to go after contraception too. So it's on the line.
0: Right. I think that's exactly what I was going to say. And I think part of that, which makes the same sex marriage feel like a more extreme thing to go after, even though it's such a more recent right, is just that struggle is intimately familiar to basically everyone who isn't super, super young, you know, whereas, you know, the the Griswold case is old and that was about contraception for married couples. You know, it's, it is like Roe, I think. And that there is less urgency to preserve these rights when the battle to secure them is so forgotten by so many people or, or never lived by any by so yeah, many people. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and again, there, there's I, I think I think many people I want to get myself in trouble here. I think many people who are very pro choice at least think, OK, you know, to you who are anti abortion, I, I get that it's a big deal you know i get that it's 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 not nothing you know it's a, it's a it's a, it's a big step it's all the kind of stuff whereas again i think for most of us contraception are sort of like what what's your problem like what can possibly be wrong with that like and what possible business is it of yours it just it seems bizarre right
0: well i think because in a lot of ways it feels like contraception is something the anti abortion movement should support in that if you want to prevent abortions having easily accessible contraception is pretty much the best way to do it, you know? And then when you dig into what you're talking about, like the specifics of the contraceptive methods that they call abortifacients, I mean, it is technical and medical and far outstrips most people's kind of basic knowledge of how reproduction works. And a lot of it's wrong. Like the IUD thing in particular... That was just the anti-abortion movement taking advantage of the fact that science didn't know for a while how exactly it worked, you know. And then we're getting into the semantics of like implementation of the eggs versus thickening of the mucus and all this kind of crazy stuff that you're like, why in what possible universe is this making a difference, you know. But that's something that's also an area where the anti-abortion movement has been super successful and just taking complicated medical and scientific realities and just the basic premise of science, which is like you can never be 100% certain about basically anything and then using that as and thus Hence, that is why it is murdering a baby.
1: And and just just for our listeners who may not be versed on this stuff, you know, we all know from like you know the the movies we had to watch in high school. Well, again, you know, before we came a theocracy, at least when we used to watch those, where you see that you know the the sperm and the egg meeting, and and then it and then the egg uh, the fertilized egg implants and so forth. What we're talking about are these very technical discussions of you know. Did the sperm already, you know, uh, uh go through the outer layer of the egg and okay, fine, but did it did it move down to here and kind of set up shop to become a baby? You know, whereas again, I I, I, I will say that I think a lot of people who are very pro-choice, can at least understand that other people might say, hey, once you're pregnant, you know, you've got to, even if it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fetus that is, you know, you'd need a microscope, that it's in process. But here we're talking about, again, did the where's the sperm? Where's what progress is making? That can't do it. You know, just like, dude, what? Like, you know.
0: Right. I mean, and it's also just, I think some of the most like misogynistic elements of the anti-abortion movement become really clear when you're talking about contraception. Like I did, I had this long interview um, with this professor who had specialized in the history of the anti-abortion movement and was kind of telling me about how being anti- contraceptives have always been, you know, woven into it. And I asked her, has there been a concerted effort you know, against condoms? And she said, no. And she said, you know, and my thought is, I mean, that's the one contraceptive method that's in the hands of men, right? Versus women. So it's just, it's a whole complicated thing, but it's just, it's interesting to me that we're having this battle on the marriage front first. And that I think it seems, I mean, it's been introduced. So we'll see if the contraception one kind of uh, reaches uh, action in the Senate as well.
1: I I do think too, that I, I think a lot of people, I mean, Obviously, there were many people who couldn't quite believe that Roe was going to be truly overturned, uh-huh. you know, because there had been it, it had gone on for so long, seemingly kind of like hanging in the balance. But I think at a far more profound level, most people just can't imagine that we're actually going to, you know, there's going to be a thing where uh, a, a woman who wants to take, you know, uh, you know, oral, con- you know, the pill won't be allowed to. Or that like, you know, there's going to be a ban on uh, condoms or IUDs or diaphragms or whatever. People just can't quite like... That, that's not possible. So, don't yeah, worry I, about
0: it. I think that's right. And I think it's predicated on an anti-abortion planted notion that abortion is rare, which it's not. You know, I think it's funny. I've talked to some experts who have said, well, they're not going to come after contraceptives. Like, you know, 90% of women of reproductive age use them at some point during the time where they can have children. And it's like, well, <laughs> one in four women will have an abortion before the end. So, it's not like we're comparing kind of a, a medical procedure that almost never happens and then right. getting the flu shot. It's just... Just I think, you know, that is a little bit I think you're totally right. And I think it's built in this idea that there is less of a culture of shame around contraceptives than there is around abortion. So we're like, yeah, well, everyone uses the pill, you know, and it's like, well, you probably know someone who had an abortion. So, yeah. you know,
1: well, right. that's that's what we're I uh, you know, that's what we're seeing mm-hmm. unfolding uh, around the country over the last, uh, you know, three or three or four weeks um, of just how how big that shockwave is. Um, And I I will say that, you know, we're, we're, I mean, you know, very quickly we've seen a lot of horror stories with, 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 I mean, we know about the case in Ohio or um, yeah, it was Ohio. Then they went to Indiana, the case in Ohio where a 10 year old girl, was uh raped and got pregnant and then had to go to Indiana to get an abortion because in Ohio they've got I guess it's one of these heartbeat uh, uh bills and but there's been a number of cases that that have not still not gotten a I mean they've gotten some publicity not the equal level of publicity but women who have had uh, uh pregnant women who have had medical crises of various sorts and at least the ones I have heard about these women haven't died but you know lots of blood loss 7 or 8 days in a very precarious uh medical state where you where you could die um where you know where you didn't none of that had to happen cuz you can just uh, you know uh, abort the pregnancy and none, and none of that happens but there you know these kind of crazy cases where it is totally solvable totally solvable but they are uh you know legally unable to you know, terminate, extract, uh, this, this, uh, fetus, because like technically you can, there, there is a pulsating electrical pulse in there that is, that is defined as a heartbeat. Now, is it even a heartbeat in a lot of ways? No, but I I can, and again, none of these women have died, but that's not a great standard, Mm -hmm. right? Um, that you're talking about great suffering and, very real risk and um it's uh, it, it it's it's just it's just kind of uh, uh crazy to think about a, a an extended medical crisis that is totally solvable medically and the one thing it should it should make us think about is how even doctors who are trying to do the right thing when you have these you know except for life of the mother, you get into these things. The doctor's like, you know, can I really, is she definitely going to die? Well, no, probably not. And and do I want to put myself at the mercy of the local DA, who's going to say that I kind of, I cut her too much slack, you know, that, that she probably really wasn't going to die? So you have a penumbra of these things where even, even, um, even pretty close calls, the doctors won't touch it because they don't want to get indicted. And like- yep.
0: Yeah. I had an interview uh, recently with kind of an abortion historian as well, who was talking about the huge, big success after Roe was that it was legal to study abortion and to do these like clinical trials and to figure out how to do it in a way that is less painful for the women. That is, though she kept using the word respect. That is respectful for the woman and for like the embryo or the fetus, you know, it's just that's how we got all these ways to do it. That's how abortion became so safe and why it became so much less painful. Um, and and how we figured out ways that in situations where the woman really wants the baby, you can, you know, abort it often in a way that she can hold it before all this kind of stuff, all this way of making this part of healthcare less horrible for the people involved. And now We're asking the people who have the tools to make this a safe and comfortable procedure, like you say, to, you know, flirt with sepsis or have women go into these like medical states of peril that are completely avoidable. And I think you wrote about this, but We're seeing this move of the anti-abortion faction to kind of downplay this stuff. I mean, in the case of the 10-year-old girl who was raped to pretend that it's completely invented. And it's just, it's so, and I I understand how that suits their political goals. So, of course, they're going to do that. But it's just, none of this is a surprise. And I've seen so many people kind of be like, well, we didn't expect to see all these horror stories at once. It's like, why didn't you expect that? I mean, we know how high the sexual assault rates are for women and for girls in this country. Of course, this is going to happen. This is going to happen on a weekly basis. And it's either that anti abortion people are less, can just care less about that than they do about, you know, quote unquote, saving the unborn, or the cruelty is the point. I mean, that this is seen as a fit punishment for any woman who's not in a situation where she is married, where she is the mother of a household, and she is having children the way that apparently an enormous sect of the country thinks she should be having children. So, yeah, it's, yeah.
1: It's, it, it's, 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 rem- and I think, you know, the only, um, the only break on these horror stories is people's willingness to come forward. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's with with this, this terrible story of the 10 year old girl in Ohio, uh, you know, we don't know, like, if, you know, maybe the decision was made for her or for her parents, you know, we don't know the exact decision. But if you had a choice, wh- why would you come forward? Like, why would why would you add to the to the trauma, both of the rape and having to travel to get the abortion? And now suddenly everybody's like, you know, the whole nation is kind of looking at you. No one wants that. Are these cases where, you know, um, uh, a, a pregnant woman has one of these sort of, you know, partial miscarriages, you know where where uh if you can't go in and 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 terminate the pregnancy you have this kind of long you know this medical crisis no one who, who no one wants to to have that um to have that scrutiny mm-hmm. of themselves and you know it's always like you know there's not um most of the news media doesn't publicize the names but uh, you know it, you know you know they're talking about you and 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 people in your circle know it's you and 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 uh it's surprising how many people are willing to come forward. Or some, you know, so sometimes people, it, it, the decision is made for them. Um, but as you say, I mean, it's a big country. There's lots of, of um, high-risk pregnancies. There's lots, you know, unfortunately, there are uh, lots of, of rapes, and some of them result in pregnancies. So it shouldn't surprise us that, like, yes, these things happen all, all the time. Uh, and you know, it is, it is, uh, certainly a lot of people, you know, we can get into, Oh, why didn't you know? Why didn't you expect? Why are you surprised? But look, there's a big chunk of the population that is just not top of mind, but now it's, 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 you know, it's kind of in the, it's on the front pages every day.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, a separate thing that's going on in Congress, which is that Joe Manchin just Joe Manchin yet again, e.g. blew up negotiations being fully conducted within his own party. You know, this time it was just Manchin and Chuck Schumer, and it was done very much behind closed doors. Um, And it had reportedly gotten to the point that staffers were writing up legislative text for this version of the reconciliation bill, which you'll remember as at one point, being the sprawling kind of country changing bill that would have had huge climate plans, it would have strengthened the social safety net, it would have had healthcare cost mitigation. That now, in this version that Schumer was negotiating with Manchin, would have been narrowed down to lowering prescription drug costs for seniors, extending ACA subsidies, which we'll talk about more because that's a really critical thing that's not getting a ton of play. Um, it would have had some tax credits for climate stuff. Um, And it would have raised taxes on some some wealthy people and some quote unquote pass through corporations to kind of pay for the rest of it. So this was exactly, exactly the deal that Manchin said he wanted when he blew up Build Back Better on live television after stringing around, stringing along Democrats for months and months and months. This is the deal he said he'd be down with. So basically, you know, this was Schumer kind of trying to act out this Democratic cry of just let Manchin write the bill. You know, he he was basically letting Manchin write the bill. And then at the 11th hour, again, Manchin says, you know what? Fuck this. Never mind. I'm not doing it. And you know why I'm not doing it? Because inflation is high. And it's like inflation has been high throughout. This is not a new revelation. Also, if you know, I did all this reporting at the time about whether Build Back Better would have an inflationary impact. And like this wide swath of experts said, no, because it's not a stimulus bill and it's meant to kind of come online slowly and all these other reasons. This is a much, much smaller, less stimulus-y Build Back Better. I mean, there's just no way it would have an inflationary impact to speak Yeah, of. There,
1: there were, that was, the, even, even someone like Larry Summers, who was like the big, big inflation hawk, mm-hmm. who, 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 um, you know, uh, in some ways has been, has been, you know, whether he was smart or lucky, who knows, but in some ways he's been vindicated by his, by his, uh, skepticism about the, uh, big aid bill in January, you know, January, uh, January, mm-hmm. February, uh, 2021, even he was like, yeah, build back better is not gonna be a problem inflation wise, because as you say, it's not, it it is not a big infusion of, of uh, cash into the economy it's 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 over a long period of time and at least the original build back better was on things you know very various uh, uh you know investment and in infrastructure investment of this it's just it it's not and and you know god the one thing to just emphasize for listeners is that like this isn't a matter of kind of like you know uh the majority leaders trying to keep all the different players on the same page and you're almost there it's only mansion the entire caucus basically said to Chuck Schumer, you know, sort of signed over to Chuck Schumer, power of attorney, <laughs> anything you can get an agreement on with Joe Manchin, we're, we're, we will vote for it. And so, as you say, they had an agreement and then just he said no. I, and it's just it, it, it's it's absurd at a at a at a certain point and clearly we're way past that point um and then yesterday though they're talking about they may and and for clarity at least what um mansion says it's it's the it's the climate stuff that is too which again climate stuff is not going to be inflationary that's just not that's not that's not how it works um The climate stuff that he was against, and oh, I'll still do these other little things. But understandably, the Democrats like, no, dude, like you won't, like we're not not even going to talk to you. You know how you clearly you're a liar. Um, And now they're saying they might give it one more. We were talking about this before we uh, started recording that it's a little, it's it's kind of ambiguous. Are they saying they might go for yet another? Mm -hmm. around with him or is it just that kind of like they don't want to bum him out because they still want to try to get the ACA subsidies and I'll tell you the thing is it's it's I mean it drives me crazy that like another round with this like serial liar because you know when you negotiate what he's doing is lying. Negotiation is a process where you sort of click off agreements one step at a time, and you know, kind of like you agree to this here and that, and based on that agreement, you agree to this and da da da. da. If you get to the end and just say no, you're breaking trust. There, it's not just a matter of you didn't like the bill. You're lying, um, and it drives people crazy. They're like, are you going to do it again? And yet, and yet, if there's a one percent chance that he's going to agree to something over the next three months, he's the only way you're going to get it. So do you just say, fuck it, we're done? It's it's a tough position to be in.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's lay out the disparate pieces that we know right now. Okay, we know that the ACA subsidies are not an option for Democrats, because basically this comes from uh, the 2021 American Rescue Plan, where they increased these tax subsidies, which made it cheaper for low-income people to get coverage, and expanded these credits to middle-class people for the first time. And that provoked a record number of people signing up for plans, um, we, about 14 million, okay? And- Now the subsidies are going to expire at the end of this year, and that's going to leave 13 million people with losing their coverage altogether or seeing their premium skyrocket. About 3 million of those people expect to just lose coverage. And kind of to add political insult to real life injury, most people will find out about their Perhaps financially disastrous change in healthcare status in October, which is like right when people are going to start voting in the midterms. And Republicans are already adopting a position of, like, you know, not our circus, not our monkeys. This is your Obamacare type thing. So they're not going to help. So it has to be done through reconciliation, which is kind of why I think there was an infusion of life into these renegotiations with Manchin, just because they have to do it. They have to do it. So Basically, after Mansion torpedoed everything, Biden was like, look, I'm going to do everything I can with climate through executive action. In the meantime, pass the ACA and pass, if you can get any kind of prescription drug cost lowering in there, pass that too. And just, which is, I mean, we should just take a minute to think about that is what Build Back Better has become, you know, it's it just, it is staggering, but there's no choice, right? You have to pass it. So that's what Biden said to do. And then we have what you alluded to, Josh, and this kind of weird delay is that so we have Biden came out with a statement right away where he said, I'm going to do executive action on climate. I'm going to do everything I can. And then you had someone like Sheldon Whitehouse tweet out this whole list of executive action stuff that the Biden administration can do. And so we expected one of the first things there to be for Biden to declare a climate emergency to just kind of give him more leeway to act. And that's not happening this week. You know, the the press secretary told reporters, it's on the table, don't expect it this week. Which then you have, okay, what's going on here? You know, why the delay? And I guess there was some Axios reporting saying that, the delay is because they think that mansion might be winnable. And obviously, we would prefer to have climate stuff in law versus in executive action. Plus, there's more than one reconciliation package at this point. So there is a world you can imagine where you get the ACA stuff, maybe some drug stuff, stamp sign, deliver, get that out the door, because they also need to do that quickly, because the healthcare stuff will start revving up in August. So you got to get that done. And then, like you say, what if what if there's like... This slim chance that Manchin will be amenable to climate stuff. Well, you don't want to piss him off and then kind of write that out of the deal. And like we you mentioned right before we went on air, Josh, it's like in the grand scheme of the climate disaster, you know, is a month or two gonna make or break us, especially because we're probably already broken. You know, probably not. But then it's just so infuriating because it's exactly what Manchin wants. It's exactly what he does every time. He blows up the deal and he says, hey, 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 now. I'm still I'm where I've always been. I'm willing to negotiate. I just don't like the high inflation. You know, I still want to do climate. I want to do energy. And he's done this every single time. And to yeah, me, I'm just like his one, you know, kind of concrete thing he said was I want to see the July inflation numbers before I'm like ready to deal again. And it's just, I just I find that completely completely unbelievable, not just because he's the least trustworthy actor we've ever interacted with, but also Inflation is not something that dissipates month by month. So, say the inflation numbers for July come out, and we've ticked down some tenths of a percent. Does anyone really think, at this still you know quite high inflation level, Manchin's going to be like, you know what? I'm nothing if not a man of my word. Inflation has gone down. Let's do climate. I mean, he's not going to.
1: Right, right, right. It's. I
0: mean, what do you think? I think Biden should just go go for it.
1: <laughs> you know, it's th- this is one of those things where as cliche as it is, there's no good option. You know, I hear from people every day who are saying like, you know, where's the leadership? You know, they have the majority, make him do it. (laughs) They can't. They can't, you know, I know a lot of people think that. You're fooling yourself. You're either, you either don't know what's happening or you're lying to yourself. No one in the Democratic caucus no one at the White House has the power to force his hand. They don't, and that just—that is just a cool, a cold reality that is uh, terribly upsetting and demoralizing. But that doesn't make it less of a fact. And it's not a fact because Joe Biden didn't push hard enough or yell enough or something like that. Joe Biden may be fucking up about a million things. He does not have the power to do this, and so there's a you know one of the big things in the way i think about politics is that it is also it is always important to be respectful of your own and your political coalition's dignity you don't make a fool of yourself you don't act like a fool you don't allow people to make you an object of ridicule because that's just bad mojo it demoralizes groups it demoralizes people it cheats them of their power. And yet, you know, if we have the chance of doing something significant on climate in the next two or three months, and I think anybody would be a fool to believe that's going to happen, but it could happen. And do you really want to just have the satisfaction of saying, Joe Manchin, fuck you, Joe Manchin. We're not going to be an idiot for you anymore. When there's still a chance of that, I, you know, I think you kind of have to try. Now the question is, do you put, do you do you do you wreck other things on that very thin hope? I don't know. I don't have. I don't have good answers. It's 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 a. Um, I would certainly understand if they try to thread the needle a bit more over the next uh, two or three months. Because look, it's very possible there will be no Senate majority in you know in in six months, in which case it will absolutely not happen until 2025 at the earliest.
0: Yeah. I mean here's my slight pushback to that, even though I do agree on the whole, which is just you you'd rather have a law than an executive order, right? That's it's much more stable and it's harder to undo. But if executive orders right now have the shelf life of 2024 don't you want to get that stuff online as quickly as possible? Well, so here,
1: here's, a, here's a kind of factual question that I need to understand more. It is my strong assumption that it's not just a question of durability, that Biden can't do nearly as much through executive actions as the Senate can do totally. through legislation, A. And B, you've got the Supreme Court. Yep. How many of those executive actions are going to be dead on arrival within a few weeks?
0: Totally. I so, mean, and and the know, other thing is just, I think this kind of built-in assumption that like, oh, we don't want to piss Manchin off by doing anything through. That, it's not even clear to me that that's what would happen. I mean, Manchin doesn't really act in a rational way like 90% of the time, you know. No,
1: I, I agree with that. And I think the best the best counter to all of this is you're not going to get his attention if you're, if you're constantly kowtowing to him. Mm-hmm. that you need to say, okay, fine, done. We're moving on. Right. And, and we'd love to do the deal, but like, we're not going to worry about things that might piss you off.
0: Yeah, like you let us know when you're ready to deal. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. the other piece of this um, that I wanted to say when you were talking about how you hear from people all the time talking about how Democratic leadership has handled, has bungled this, and it's kind of their fault for not handling that, agenda two things. The first is we now have data points of Democrats trying to do it in the way that they got criticized for not doing it during Build Back Better, right? Which is that people said he loves to be the center of attention and you're doing this all in public. And that means that every time he blows up any piece of the bill, it's a huge raft of headlines and it's a huge uh, spotlight right on him, right? So this time, Schumer does it like completely in private. Very little was known about this deal before Manchin blew it up. And there was no pressuring Manchin in public. There was no naming him in press releases. I mean, it's like they acted completely on the-
1: are of course also absurd, totally, as anything that anybody, any normal person would get upset about. Right,
0: but they took like all the criticism from the last time and acted on it, and it resulted in exactly the same conclusion. And it wasn't
1: even the first time, you know, for our listeners. Uh, last year, I mean, I lose track of what's in what year, but uh, I think it was uh, last year or early this year. Uh, with you know, voting rights and the and the filibuster, mm-hmm. they made this. They made this uh, judgment of okay if we if we tell if we go to Joe Manchin and say hey you write a bill you write it mm-hmm. we're not even going to negotiate it with you you write it and talk to your republican buddies and uh you know and and we'll vote for anything you can get them to agree to and and we'll just call it a voting rights bill because we're we're we have we're totally in under your power. And they did that, and the thinking was, all right, if he writes his own bill and his own ego was on the line, and no Republicans will sign on, he's just gonna say, "All right, fuck it. Fuck the filibuster. you screwed me.'re me. We're doing this with fifty votes. And in fact, the, he did the bill, his bill, he supported it, They didn't agree, and he's like, well, guess we're done.
0: Plus, you got to run out like two months of clock while doing that, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, And then just the other thing, which is just more for a chuckle, is uh, this came up in like a social setting I was in last week. And someone was like, you know what? If if Trump was president, he would have been able to make Manchin do what he wanted. And I was just like... Trump had a trifecta and they passed the tax cuts and like, that's it. I mean, it's so funny. I think we have this vision of Trump that still stems from the 2016 upset that he's like somehow masterful at politics in a way that other people aren't. And it just, I was like, <laughs> what evidence do we have that Trump was legislatively savvy at all? He could do almost nothing and he blew yeah. up his own party stuff routinely. Yeah,
1: he he was, he was an extremely ineffective president as a yeah. legislator. I mean extreme I mean much worse than usual and it's hardly surprising cuz he's he was totally ignorant of the process and he had uh I mean look you do need to kind of you know knock some heads sometimes and do, but he he's he has none of the qualities. He doesn't have the smarts or the knowledge to really dig into it and he's famously conflict averse.
0: Mm. Or He's the attention a coward. span. <laughs> yeah, attention
1: span. I mean, one, one obvious thing is Obamacare. Couldn't get mm. it done. Yeah. Couldn't get it done. Right. You know.
0: Okay, so let's do kind of a quick preview of the January 6th hearing tomorrow, which has been marketed as kind of like the big finale, you know, the big primetime finale. But now we're already hearing the committee say, well, we've unearthed more stuff since the hearings have started. So there might be more tacked on. But this is going to be the big one that's about the 187 minutes during the insurrection. What was Trump doing and where are our gaps in that knowledge? Um, And our colleague Matt actually has up on the site now a really good piece that pulls together from Lawmakers, reporters, researchers, like everything we know in that TikTok of what was happening, what he was doing and what we don't know. And I think kind of the latest breaking piece of this is this whole Secret Service, you know, kerfuffle where we've suddenly found out that after the texts from Secret Service agents have been subpoenaed, all of a sudden those texts have disappeared, you know, and then I think it was like initially passed off as some, well, routine switching over of devices. But, you know, now we're getting conflicting accounts about are these texts gettable? Are they not? The Secret Service got all pissy about saying, well, this malicious implication. But you know, that's kind of a late breaking piece of this.
1: Yeah, it's it's I've had a really hard time getting my head around this because this is what they are saying. Kate is right that the story has gotten a little more muddled. But basically, their story is something like this. We were upgrading our hardware, our phones, our pagers, you know, whatever you're using to text, So show my age here about pagers, uh, with, you know, upgrading, the, upgrading our hardware and, uh, some stuff didn't get backed up and now the hardware has gone. And so it's gone. And how we, and how we were backing stuff up was we sent out a note. To every agent to uh, be sure to upload the texts on your phone to this server and that's their document retention plan. Now, <laughs> that, doesn't pass the, that does not pass the laugh test. That is not, I mean, many of you work in big organizations or you work for the government or something like this. Document retention is a big thing and uh, document security and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, there are very serious federal laws that deal with presidential records and stuff. And the idea that you, I mean, look, you know, like, love, love the Secret Service agents in the movies, right? They're great guys and everything. But look, let's be honest, they're, they're not like tech dudes, right? You're sending an email to like, you know, Fred, who's 55 and and works at Secret Service, and and he's supposed to kind of you know uh, uh figure out how to how to upload his text messages somewhere. And there's no redundancy if he forgets. Basically, what they're saying is a lot of the guys just didn't do it, and so it's gone. <laughs> that is not. There was parts of the federal government in the late 90s that worked that way, and maybe even in the early aughts. There's so many regulations that are covered. That is really, really hard to believe that that is remotely what happened. And, you know, the the sort of the best, uh, it's not even a defense, but sort of explanation is that, and and let's for a moment take this explanation on its own terms, the Secret Service institutionally does not, not, not like talking about anything to do with things that come up in the process of their protective duties. And for really good reason, you need the president to just trust you with Anything, anything, because he can't be ducking away and, and, you know, going out of your line of sight or something like that. So, okay, that that makes sense. But you still don't get to destroy federal records like, you know, no matter what your reason is, you can't do that. That's a big time felony. The the other thing is, though, and I was talking to someone kind of in that not someone at the Secret Service, but kind of in that policing national security world kind of thing yesterday. And I would say the second most innocent, although it's not innocent at all, explanation is that there was a lot of chatter of, of you know, Secret Service guys saying, yeah, fuck Nancy Pelosi. She has it coming. And fuck Mike Pence. You know, he, he betrayed Trump. And look, <laughs> what is it about what you know about middle-aged white law enforcement dudes that makes you think they wouldn't be really into Trump. Of course they would. Of course they were into Trump. And, and what we know of those two people who suppose, you know, the whole thing about the, the blow up in the car, those two guys, those guys were picked by Trump to take on leadership positions out of the Secret Service. So out of a pretty Trumpy population, he picked the most Trumpy people So you think they weren't saying some stuff that even if they didn't do bad things would look really bad seeing the light of day? That's not at all hard to imagine. And yet, is it really possible that they thought it would be that they'd get away with just destroying all the text messages? I I can't, I can't, um, and I I suspect that is where a lot of the other government infrastructure is right now. Of kind of saying like, walk me through this. Because I don't think any. I think it's hard for anybody to believe. Did you actually destroy all the documents? And and you think that's going to be okay? Because none of the options here make any sense. And and yet here we are. You know,
0: right? And then we're on this like weird kind of technological precipice of like you know, once a text has been sent, is there any way to really kind of strike it off the face of the earth i don't know i don't know maybe maybe not
1: you know it's it's i even had someone telling me kind of like doesn't the nsa sweep up everything can't they can't they whip it up i mean it's I know a I, good
0: question i, have I mean no idea, we lay all, people don't know
1: yeah well it's it's weird because like for civilians our texts are on servers whether it's app you know our texts are all over the place if someone really wants to find them the texts i mean the the stuff the secret service does is of such profound national security secrecy you're talking about what the president does moment to moment you can't have that showing up on like google servers or you know transiting through some uh you know kind of technology wires that are abroad you need to keep you need that to be really tight within within the federal government or at least as they you know uh the federal government does a huge amount of business with the amazon cloud but it's not like the cloud you and i use they're not just like uploading the nsa stuff onto you know (laughs) up onto an aws cloud basically how that works is the um Amazon is sort of handing over control of a part of their cloud thing under all sorts of protections that the federal government has control over blah 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 uh so I don't know the whole thing is so crazy it's it's I really can't get my head around it and again, I think the reason it hasn't quite caught fire yet is that a lot of senior journalists, a lot of senior government technology people, a lot of senior uh, law enforcement people are kind of thinking like, you can't really have destroyed the records and thought that was going to work. So let's go through this again, because it can't be it can't be as as unbelievable as it seems to be.
0: Right. So, uh, yeah, come uh, follow along with us tomorrow. We're going to be you know, live blogging and all that. It'll be a primetime one. So, you know, should be big. Um, must see TV. Exactly. So let's take this question real quick before we wrap. Um, Carl says, it appears Senate Democrats will try to get a reconciliation bill through, which only addresses Medicare prescriptions and ACA subsidies. Does this have the full support of Democrats in the House or will some liberals or Josh Gottheimer blow it up? Um, So we don't exactly know yet because having moved on to this thing is fairly new, but I would say Gottheimer kind of attempted to make a stink again with this narrow down bill that Schumer and Manchin were working on and said, "Hey, if there's no salt tax, I'm not going to be there." Um if there, there's no uh, provision addressing the salt tax and this came up before we all remember like he does this routinely every time he feels like he's not getting enough attention and Manchin's getting it all, but even that like kind of quote-unquote rebellion, the the one piece that was written about it that I wrote it was him and one other guy from New Jersey. So I, I don't think, I mean, we haven't seen the liberals blow up anything. You know, there's this constant refrain of like, well, the progressives ruin everything. It's like, actually, they've been on board with anything that can get passed. But yeah. I do think the ACA subsidies are so dire that even someone who freaking loves the, the spotlight, like Josh Gladheimer, I don't even know if he would be able to wrangle up enough Democrats to to murder something so important, especially when there is at least a suggestion of another reconciliation bill coming down the pike.
1: Yeah. I, I, and and, and it is funny because as, as Kate says, when, when it seemed like this mansion Schumer thing was going to work, uh, God, Harman came forward like, okay, let's talk. Now I'm, <laughs> here now I am. I'm, in, yeah, here I am. <laughs> let's let's let this isn't over. And, 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 you know, a uh, mansion sort of did him the favor of blowing it up, but before it even, you know, before it even got there. Um, I kind of think you're right. I think I think Gottheimer would do anything, but he's only one vote, and exactly. as close as it is in the House, they have more than a one vote margin. I really doubt that. Kind of more than anyone else would 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 uh, would jump in there. And and look, the House repeatedly over the last twenty years, um, you know, it happened with the ACA because of the dynamics of the Senate and sixty votes and all, you know, reconciliation, all those kind of things. The House Democratic Caucus often ends up having to just pass Senate versions of the bill because there is no other choice, um, and I'm pretty confident that would that would happen in this case. You know, there's one more thing before we sign off that we that okay we didn't mention is our list. Ah, uh, yes, our list is coming. We have um, our uh, Rowan reform. Uh scorecard. I mean, I kind of I don't like calling a scorecard exactly because that makes it sound like kind of frivolous. And obviously this is anything but frivolous, but it is a scorecard in this way that uh Kate and I, mainly Kate, have been putting together this list. And it's it it may come out today, uh Wednesday, uh, July 20th. If not, it'll come out tomorrow. Um, and basically what it is, it is where every, but every Senate Democrat stands on passing a row law and, and suspending the filibuster rules to ensure it gets a, a up or down 50, 50 vote, um, you know, uh, majority vote. And the key here is it is the, it is always the advantage of legislators that they want to keep everything obscure. You know, the Senate democratic caucus isn't there yet. The caucus doesn't support it yet. Well, if you are a citizen, a constituent, a voter who wants to say, why not? Who do I talk to? Who do I call up? Who do, who's the problem? Well, oh, it's just the caucus isn't there. That doesn't help you. You want to know specifically because there is no caucus. There's 50 senators. And, and so it's, it, it's that. So what we're trying to do here is, is break it down and tell you. It, in a way, it's sort of a DIY, uh, you know, legislative uh, whipping guide, you know, to lip, uh, whip a piece of legislation, get all the votes in line. What can you as a citizen do? So how these work is, uh, we're, we're, it seems like we're breaking it down into five categories. You got the yeses, and there's about 30 yeses. People say, yep, I'm there for it. All, we're all set. We know there's two noes, uh, mansion and cinema. And then we, we've basically got it down to three more groups. There's one group who they say they're for a row law. They also say they're for filibuster reform, but they have not been willing to join the two in a statement. And this is not just our being, you know, dicks about it, right? It's important because unless you're really connecting them, it's still like, are you, you know, are we going to get there? Are you really willing to do it? Well, probably they are, but they haven't said it.
0: It's also, I would just like to interject the most Senate brain afflicted group because there is no policy position where you want filibuster reform and you want abortion protections, but you don't want them together. That just doesn't exist. But it's this dynamic Josh is talking about where it's like, you don't want to stick your neck out. You know, you don't want to be ahead of the pack at all. So and, and, hang back.
1: And it's also part of, of Senate world and Senate brain to say like, hey, I I, I, I take these issues very seriously. I don't want to make it slogans. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, this is a thoughtful process. Mm-hmm. Don't rush me. Don't, don't try to tie me down. And it's sort of, this is where you get into like, this isn't a private club of a hundred people you're, you're part of. You work for us. Right. What, do, what do you mean? Don't do this. Don't do that. Thoughtful, whatever. We want a straight answer. Okay. So, th- so that's another dozen people or so, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Then you have about six that just, they have not commented. They haven't said anything, or they've said something so amorphous and meaningless as it amounts to the same thing. Now, one key point about uh, how we go about this is, you know, some uh, journalists might just say, oh, just just haven't, you know, there's nothing, nothing there. We, you know, we know nothing about that. Not exactly. Democrats have been talking about this for about a month. I mean, in some ways, been talking about it for years, but specifically this thing, are you going to do this? And the President of the United States a couple of weeks ago said, just give us two senators. That's all we need. So the President of the United States has basically committed the 48 senators to do this. If they haven't commented yet, it's, it's not that they didn't hear about this. It's not that, they, <laughs> that, they, that they, they don't think anybody's interested. It's a decision not to comment about it. They've decided they do not want to comment. And that is a position in itself. And uh, as constituents, as voters, as citizens, you should know that. Okay, your your position is you don't you you don't think we even deserve an answer. So that's about half a dozen, and then and at present, it seems like there's two. Do you want to talk about these two?
0: Yeah. So basically, we separated Angus King and Mark Warner into this last kind of middling position because they're both people who, while We know 48 Democrats supported filibuster reform when it came down to the voting law. But basically, all they're on the record talking about with filibuster reform is that they don't like it. In the case of King, who basically all he said on the linkage of abortion protections and filibuster reform is, well, we got to be careful because then Republicans will just pass an abortion ban. Like that's basically everything he said about it has been negative and kind of expressing dubiousness about this plan. And then for Warner when he came around on the reform to pass the voting rights bill he said you know very specifically this is the only reform i'll consider this carve out for the voting rights thing so they're in their own category because they have not expressed support of filibuster reform philosophically at all you know they're different from the say nothing group because they're they're not saying nothing what they're saying is expressing That they don't like the idea or that they don't like the concept of filibuster reform as applied to anything more than voting rights. And I do want to be abundantly clear that neither Josh nor I are saying that in this hypothetical situation, say like Fetterman wins and a couple other Democrats win and somehow Democrats hold the House and this comes up. We're not saying that Angus King or Mark Warner is going to transform into Joe Manchin and be like, no, I'm not voting for this. I'm destroying it. What we're saying is there is a morale-raising and election-winning tactic that centers on, we need two more senators and we need the House and then we will pass abortion protections. And you can't say that unless you've got 48 senators saying, yep, this I am all in now and I will be all in there. Exactly. And so Warner and King are decidedly not saying that. And that doesn't mean that they won't come around. That doesn't mean that they didn't come around on voting rights. You know, if push comes to shove, they are dependable to democratic votes. They probably will. But in terms of rallying behind or coalescing behind this message now, they are the next biggest outliers after And they're Manchin holding and it Sinema. up.
1: They're right. holding it up for people who want to say like, yeah, whatever. They promised last time. They they point to these people. Well, you know, how do you know these two? Then it, then it's then it's you need four seats. Two seats is 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 a real challenge. Four seats is that's not going to happen.
0: Yeah. Plus, it's the politicos of the world's absolute favorite story to say. Mm-mm, it's not just mansion and cinema, which <laughs> Politico and all their like ran that article before the voting rights reform vote which 48 people voted for so it wasn't even correct but it does just kind of like you say it gives space for doubt and it gives it takes away kind of the solid action oriented statement of we only need two senators and we know we only need two senators
1: yeah and 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 that, that's the thing and as kate says in an electoral context you need to say you know it's baked We've got 48 signed up, committed, publicly committed. Give us two, and we're going to deliver because we can deliver, right? Um, And and just I'll just emphasize and you know agree with Kate's point. I'm I'm highly confident that those 48 senators are all going to sign on for this eventually, but it's going to take in in a few of these cases, it's going to take their constituents to force their hand. And there may be some others that need some hand forcing, you know, Chris Coons, you know, Joe Bipartisan, Joe, don't, don't rush me. This is a special club we have, you know, so it's, it, and so it's, as, as, as Kate was suggesting, it's, it's sort of a fine balance here. You got to push, you got to force, you got to, you know, you got to demand, but we also don't want you know people like ah. Oh, it turns out there's there's not even 48. It's all for naught. What's the point? There there will be, but you got to make it happen. So anyway, we're gonna we're gonna. That's probably gonna come out today. Uh, if not, it'll come out tomorrow. And then you look at it and and you know see who's where. And uh, if you need to make some calls and 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 make your voice heard, because as Kate says, having that crystal clear is a very big deal, both for holding on to the Democratic Congress and having the opportunity to say back to the Supreme Court, you know what? No, you did it. We're undoing it. And that could happen as soon as January 2023. That's not that far away. And that's, a, that's the kind of thing that, you know, what is important in politics is, you know, all of the, all of the anger and all of the fear and all of the outrage that so many people are feeling right now the kind of like how did this happen and all that fury politically you want to you want to sort of bundle that up and channel it towards you you can do something you're not powerless you can undo this and here's the here's the path and we're trying to at least uh make clear where that where that uh where that path is so uh i guess that's about it right kay I think we've covered everything under the sun. All right. Uh, uh, The Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. As you know, you can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com. Promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Remember, we're going to have coverage of the big uh, maybe finale, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. There may actually be more hearings, but the uh, semi-finale tomorrow. And I guess that's about it.
0: All right. See you next week. Later.